and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 196. Today is Sunday, the 22nd of May, 2016, and this interview is with Margaret Malloy, CMO and Head of Business Development at Siegel & Gale, a premier global strategic branding firm based in New York and part of the Omnicom Group. Margaret is a regular on the lists of the most influential and most savvy marketing pros, including the top five most influential CMOs on social media, as voted on Forbes. In this conversation with Margaret, we discuss how to execute strong branding, the right mix between communications and brand experience, and if you had to make a choice between employee engagement or customer centricity, which one would you choose? And most importantly, a thread that runs throughout how to bring simplicity and clarity to your brand and organization. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host and author of The Mindset, that's M-Y-N-D-S-E-T dot com, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes to the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue. So today I am on Skype into Manhattan with Margaret Malloy. So tell us, Margaret what you do, and what's your mindset? Hello, Minter. I am Margaret Malloy, the Chief Marketing Officer of Siegel & Gale, one of the world's leading strategic brand consultancies. And my mindset is execution is the ultimate differentiator. Love that. I, well, a friend of mine in New York, who will have that resonate deeply with him, he always just said, execution is strategic. So uh, one of the things that I picked up and, and about Siegel and Gale is that it says it's a global strategic brand f- for a branding firm specialized in strategy, customer experience, design and naming. We are the simplicity company. And, I, and of course, that resonates hugely with us, with so many of us grappling with so many things to deal with. But tell us, how do you go about making a brand simple, especially when you're a big corporation with a legacy history and a and a lot of a larger large infrastructure. So first I think it's important to define simplicity. For us at Siegel and Gale, we define simplicity is an experience at the intersection of clarity and surprise. So by clarity we mean transparency, um, distilling a message to its essence or designing a logo or identity that is striking in its experience. The surprise element comes from reimagining experiences in useful and distinctive ways. And the challenge for what you characterize as legacy or big companies is to essentially reboot their processes, their systems, and their mindsets to embrace simplicity. In my mind, the first and arguably the most important step is to start with defining a clear purpose. That's the starting point. What does your business stand for? What's its role in society? And how does it go to market? And by providing a clear purpose, you essentially have the foundation for creating a clear and simple and indeed surprising brand experience. Cool. So when we're talking about purpose here, we are are generally looking at a higher plane, a higher mission. That's correct. It's really the intersection of 
what role does your company play in society and what is its commercial mandate? So if you take those two dimensions, you come up with that purpose. So it's not merely a mission or non-profit type orientation. It's what do you uniquely do and why should the world and your constituents in particular care? The question I often ask of clients who are thinking through this issue is, if your company disappeared today, how would the world be different tomorrow? That really helps people think through at a very visceral level, what is their purpose? I love that. One of the, when you're listening to you, and I, of course, I, I really appreciate the notion of purpose as a driving force and something that creates singularity. You know, you look at some of the brands that have, let's say, s- singularly simple slogans uh, and then other ones that are, you know, much more convoluted and you can just feel that the bureaucracy is weighing in on the words as you go down the phrase. But if you go, if you think about like the just do it's of the world, how, you know, th- those are very simple. And yet, I mean, they, any, they could be ascri- anything can be ascribed to them. How do you anchor a simple message and make it valid and travel through the organization and out to the consumer? So the art of coming up with purpose, particularly one that is succinct, just like the one you've described, is a very specific art form and science. So coming up, first thing is articulating a purpose that is achievable by the company, yet aspirational, that is authentic to who they are and how they comport themselves in society and perform in business. So the first part of the equation is getting that statement right. The second part, on some level, comes back to my mindset, although I didn't expect us to go there. It's about executing on the purpose or in more traditional marketing parlance, delivering on that promise. And ultimately, for a brand... That means that every point of contact, your constituents, be they customers, employees, investors, have with your brand, has to live up to that promise. Right. One of the things that I'm confronted with, or I've seen a lot of, should we put it that way, behind closed doors or others, is that we can talk up a good game of purpose and and uh, slogans per se, but oftentimes there's a a lot more weight put on the financial pressures and and ultimately maybe the CEO doesn't really believe them. Yeah, 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 it's important, but I got other things that are more important. How do you how do you do you come across that? <laughs> Not in your clients, of course, but how do you yeah. and how do you combat that? I think it comes down to having clarity about what is purpose. And as I mentioned earlier, it's not limited to impact on society, there is the commercial component to Mm -hmm, that. mm -hmm. So it begins with really defining a purpose that's anchored in the unique strengths of the company, the moral imperative, if you will, and the commercial uniqueness that they bring. And if you get it right, then it isn't a question of one being antagonistic with the other, but rather that they are mutually reinforcing. Ultimately, this comes down to really understanding your market. If you understand your consumers, buyers, etc., 
then and your ability to service them, you will articulate a purpose that is both aspirational and mission-driven and addresses moral imperative, but it also conforms to your financial requirements. I think the other issue, and it's important we don't conflate them, that you're suggesting is the notion that so much of the financial markets is very short-term in its horizon. This whole notion of short-termism, particularly for publicly traded companies, is an issue that goes way beyond brand. It transcends communications into innovation. And so it is one of the greatest barriers, particularly in the United States, in my view, to corporate development. And that's a it's a topic for another conversation, but it's bigger than brand. I get that. So you um, you talk about surprise. And I recently wrote a post about being surprised at a prêt-à-manger, a pret, where I walked in, I paid, and um, I said, do you have any men, you know, uh, menu offers where you can you know, buy a, a group of things together for a cheaper deal? And they said, no, 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 we, everything's à la carte. So said, oh, okay, that's cool. I'll buy what I want. So I put, you want anything else? I said, no, no, no that's, that's all fine. And then out, out came the guy and says, well, and would you like a, a cup of coffee on, on us? And, and to say that I was uh, taken aback was, was a mild state. I was like, what do you mean? Just like that? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever, whatever coffee you'd like, it's on, our, on the house. So that, that was a beautiful element of surprise. So my, my question or my thought goes to how do you, well, how, how important are expectations as part of creating the right brand? I believe expectations are critical. Um, again, if we are to judge how a brand is comporting itself, it's about delivering on that promise. So the promise you make in your communications is in effect setting those expectations. So they are critical. But the surprise part can be more subtle as well because ultimately it's about building trust. And that requires a level of empathy with the customer. So perhaps in your scenario, the employee felt that you would benefit from a coffee or maybe he thought it would be a very nice gesture and was empowered to deliver on that assessment. Successful brands, in our view, make relationships feel spontaneous, highly personalized and responsive. So in the scenario that you depicted, it was certainly surprising, so much so you were inspired to write a post, but and it felt spontaneous. So that's a gorgeous example of delivering on surprise. The challenge for brands is to do that at scale. Mm-hmm. So how do you make sure that yours is not an isolated experience, but rather part of their DNA and how the brand employees essentially bring the brand to life? And that notion is the dominion of an entirely new evolving discipline in branding called employee engagement and employee branding. And how do you make sure that every time an employee, in this example, touches a diner, that that experience is at once surprising and clear, which in our mind is the epitome of simplicity. Mm. Well, I, I certainly love the idea or the maybe the paradox of consistent surprise, because that's, in the end of the day, that's what you're saying. The ability to scale surprise. Yes, and make it feel spontaneous, yet relevant. So he offered you something that was in 
in their domain that felt appropriate. It wasn't silly. And so many times we see brands falling because they try to enter a domain, be it in the a social issue or something that's really not something they should be talking about. So that felt like a very authentic and appropriate interaction on the part of that brand. Where I wanted to go with this in, in this regard was that in order to surprise, you have to, in essence, and if it's to be a positive surprise, you have to exceed the expectation. So the other point might be to lower your expectation setting in order to then be able to create an easier, more affordable surprise. The challenge is, how do you cut through the clutter? Because all I'm going to say is in a very low voice, by the way, come buy my food. You know, with no, no, no element of exaggeration. I think that's right. And I think there's a lot of risk associated, in general, I find, with low expectations. I mean, we talk about anyone from politicians to leaders who are successful and sometimes they adopt that tactic and it's been described as the bigotry of low expectations. I think the risk with that from a commercial enterprise perspective is the competitive onslaught. So every industry right now is being upended by new business models, variously referred to as startups or disruptors or innovators. So setting low expectations and exceeding them feels like it could be an interesting short-term strategy. And in this era, where we all have megaphones on social media, that period may be very, very short. So it may have worked, as, as one would say, back in the day when information didn't spread as quickly. Today, I think it's on the contrary. It's about anticipating people's needs before they even know they have them, such that the surprise is on a, solving an unanticipated need as distinct for setting a low bar and exceeding that bar. Mm, which is what happened for me. I mean, the first point. So you mentioned before, Margaret, employer employee engagement and, and how that's a real conduit for driving a strong uh, brand experience and surprise. I, you know, I, I've batted around this thought uh, numerous times, and I still haven't really landed on, on my feet on it. So I was wondering, maybe you clear me, clear me up. If you had to, if I forced you, Margaret, to go one way or the other, which would you go? Employee engagement, customer centricity. I would go employee engagement unequivocally. Because I think engaged employees can anticipate customers' needs and deliver on them. So you can be customer-centric in all your strategy documents and in all your communications, but if the employees aren't engaged, that's just rhetoric. Whereas if you have engaged employees, and maybe you make a few faux pas in terms of the strategy, smart, engaged employees can pivot and deliver experience and exhibit good judgment on brand. So to me, that's actually a really easy question. <laughs> good to hear. So you wrote, I, I read your article in Inc. about uh, brand experience and how brand experience is the new content, which is really interesting, of course. How do you go about finding the right mix, though, between, let's say, old-fashioned broadcasting, getting the, the fact that you've written great content out there and the experiences that you want them to go through? I think it comes down to having insight around your customers. So if you know what your customers value, 
and the context in which they are making a buying decision. You will be in a good position to get that blend of content and delivery, as well as knowing where to present the content, what form factor, whether it's video or whether it's a quick list checklist, whether it's short form content or long form content, really understanding the customer's value drivers as well as their context of purchase helps inform that mix. It's not particularly different from trying to decide whether to invest in the retail store or the e-commerce platform. It's really understanding what's the state of mind of your buyer and how to be useful to them. We talked a moment ago about simplicity and the notion of clarity and surprise. One dimension of that that's often unexplored is utility. Having content that is useful, that anticipates and helps answer questions customers have or move them along in their decision-making process, that's incredibly powerful. And people sometimes, brands, make it really difficult for their customers to actually consummate a transaction. So being useful is an important question to ask of yourself as a brand. Is the content we're providing useful? And then maybe throw in a little bit of, is it entertaining? Because there's a part of our psyche that responds to being entertained. Of course, the caveat in all of this is it depends on the category and the nature of the purchase. Sure. Well, I, I love this idea of utility. and uh, But I, I think of it in, in a couple of ways. For example, if you have a product that needs to be, you need a, a user guide, this is maybe what some people think is utility. How, do you have like a, a different layers or do you have a, an approach to leveling or providing different levels to the amount of utility that you can provide? Is there any discourse to saying, well, there, you can have one that's really far removed from the product itself, but it really provides an extraordinary utility in a, in a greater or outer sphere around the, around the product? I think you can certainly develop frameworks based on the category. Utility can be very functional in the context of a user manual, in a very literal way, how-tos, FAQ questions. And it can span out to understanding the context in which something is used. So what's your end goal? You're buying this piece of software to um, design something. But really what you're trying to do is enhance your productivity. So how do you be mindful of giving people, in that example, tips on how to save time. So that's an illustration of functionally, perhaps the customer is using a piece of software to complete a task. But at a more meta level, they're trying to be more productive. And productivity in their lives can transcend the moment in which they're using that product. We see that in a world that I know that's dear to you, in the beauty world, in consumer, where ostensibly someone may be purchasing a product to moisturize their skin, but maybe they're solving for a much more psychological benefit and maybe content can help them with issues that are greater than the, the science of moisturizers. I, I, there many, one of my favorite examples of great utility is Corbell out in California where they, so they're sort of the quote unquote champagne, of course, that's heresy over here in France, but um, you know, it's this bubblies for great occasions and typically for younger generations who are making their first speeches. And so they provided the service of helping 
write speeches for the uh, first timers. And I thought that was a beautiful example. Oh, that's a wonderful example. <laughs> I would say, too, I mean, it's not new. I mean, look at American Express back in the day. They created travel and leisure guides, content marketing or custom publishing for the users of their card or their card members. Today, they've expanded that thinking into providing information for small businesses. And they now have a website that's much larger than you use our credit card and much more helpful to help to people who are trying to address all the issues that small businesses have and business owners. So it's really about thinking first and foremost on a practical level, because you ha- it's almost like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You must address the basic need. How do you use our product? How do I provide help desk? How do I consummate a transaction? And then once we've hit that table stakes, how do we help people in the context of using the product or service? And that's where the notion of content marketing is only limited by the creativity of the marketing managers. You, you write about the differences between business to consumer and business to business uh, in the idea of creating a brand and brand experience. And there we're talking about American Express in this particular case for small entrepreneurs. Uh, one of the things I, I loved and it really made me smile was that you mentioned that simple terms and conditions, which are understandable, are part of the brand experience, which really what you're saying is that instead of just focusing on the marketing message and the advertisement that we do, there's so much more, including the small print, that goes into it. So the question is, to what extent is brand the dominion of functions that that are outside of uh, the marketing area? In other words, is is brand can branding be in all parts of the business? Certainly. Branding, if, if we're being very... Um, literal about it is really a reflection of every interaction your customer has with your firm, uh, your product, your service. And what our research reveals is that some of the most gnarly issues, whether it's getting through procurement and contracting in the B2B company, or whether it's the terms and conditions in a car rental, for example, or an insurance contract, they can be really bad brand experiences for customers or clients. So it stands to reason spending all of your best creative talent around wonderful promotional and marketing for acquisition of customer and forgetting these points is just flawed strategy. One of the perhaps surprising findings from one of our studies, our Global Brand Simplicity Index, is Consumers find that brands who, who provide convoluted terms and conditions are not simple. And the worst part of that is a lot of consumers perceive that behavior on the part of brands as intentionally obscuring something. So we all know the stories of the airlines who will advertise inexpensive flights And then when you go online and you see all the fees, suddenly your check is a much larger one than you anticipated. Or the car rental company who has these hidden fees. Consumers are smart and they see that as a, they will impute bad value on your brand as a result of that sort of behavior. So these are some of the low hanging fruit that brands can improve and offer a better brand experience that should certainly be within the dominion of marketing. 
Well, I, what I, I can say is that from my experience, I got a little bit of echo back there. My, from my experience is that it's hardly the glitzy part of a marketing job to go and look at the small print. They, they much prefer to look at the model and how she's got the perfect makeup on and, you know, go do the photo shoot. But reading the small print that the legal people are supposed to do is hardly where they like to put their nose. That's valid. And I think there's a missed opportunity in the sense that if you truly believe in the model around the customer journey, you will articulate every stage the customer has in their interactions with your brand. And there are opportunities to enhance that overall experience beyond what might be traditionally deemed the creative part, but what presents an opportunity to be really creative. And we believe that comes back to being simple and transparent. And I would submit to you that the brands who embrace simplicity at every touch point will earn loyalty from their customers, which of course is the holy grail. Conversely, if you don't do that, you're perceived to be trying to be misleading. And that will, customers will notice. Increasingly, they will tell others and it, you'll pay the price. Well, then there's the shame value as an employee. Yeah, who doesn't want to work for a company that is transparent? I mean, we live in a culture where transparency is valued. So it's, it's a really interesting opportunity, I think, for brands to provide that clarity at every stage, not limiting it to the, um, the advertising or what I call the customer acquisition phase. Yeah. All right, so... Now, I want to talk a little bit about your role, Margaret, because you're the CMO at Siegel & Gale. And the CMO, let's call it a, a position that has sort of come out of the, this new resurgence of need for branding and, and how marketing has become more co complicated, although it's probably been around for a lot longer in general. How do you define the role of the CMO and how do you see it playing out, especially when it comes to being in large organizations that are trying to lead this rather convoluted world of uh, multimedia, long customer journey and all that? For me, it comes down to understanding the core of marketing. So at its core, marketing is about influence and persuasion. There are many channels, there are, there are many ways to achieve that goal, but that's at the heart of what a marketer's role is. So therefore, the role of the CMO is to rally an organization to influence its constituents to achieve the company or the brand's desired outcomes. So that's the backdrop against which I think CMOs live their lives. And great CMOs know that that function is performed differently based on the type of organization. The emphasis is different. In some organizations, the emphasis is on investor relations component. In other organizations, it's understanding the customer journey and um, the customer experience. In others, again, it's that proximity between marketing and sales. But ultimately, anchoring it all in, it's about influence and persuasion and being that voice of the customer So, and the customer's advocate. So you can't influence a customer without understanding at a very visceral level that behavior. So being the customer's advocate, being the voice of the customer, and that's not different 
whether you're a B2B company or a B2C. In your experience and your observations, <laughs> whichever which whatever you want to use from, it, it seems like a tall order for some profiles uh, in the position of CMO to be able to put their nose into the legal documents to make sure the terms and conditions are okay, to make sure that the events were done well, that the uh, all the different components of the interface with a customer are done well in retail. So it, it can be a difficult thing to be an influencer in each of these areas without being someone saying, well, you're, why are you putting your nose into my area? I understand your concern, and I believe it's legitimate and depends ultimately on the culture of the company. But I believe that's the job. That's the assignment not everyone and uh, not every organization shares such a broad interpretation of the role as I may do this afternoon. But I think without someone being the custodian of the customer voice, looking out for that opportunity to influence and persuade customers, investors, employees, the company is missing an opportunity. It is a senior role. There is a lot to be done. And it's a very exciting opportunity to be able to take that very strategic look for a company. I believe only the most enlightened companies have CMOs who have that broad portfolio, but ultimately it is the right strategy. I should say, too, that when I'm speaking about the role, I speak about it in a role description. But what's also important is how the individual delivers on that role and their style And one of the elements that I think will help any CMO in doing that is think of themselves not merely as the chief marketing officer, but as a chief simplicity officer. (laughs) And obviously, that's my perspective. But you introduced in the beginning, there are so many channels, there's so much dimension to delivering on marketing. the, The job of the marketer is to take all of these inputs as CMO translate them, isolate what is relevant to each of the other players in their organization to help drive the right initiatives and the right prioritization. Well, from having listened to you now for the nearly half an hour, Margaret, I can definitely feel the way you speak with great clarity and simplicity. So that's very, uh, you, you do well, you say and you do well. Um, one of the other things which I noticed about you, Margaret, which is your your Uh, out there on social media. Of course, you're a CMO at a communications organization. But for people who are in marketing in business in general, how important would you put it on a scale of 1 to 10 to be actually active on social media themselves? I would say it's a 10. Vitally important. And a couple of reasons for that. Embracing social media is key to building and maintaining your network. And as a CMO, you need to look outside your own four walls to see what your peers are doing in other industries, learn from them, which will help you innovate in your own organization. Second reason is social media is a contact sport, Minter. It's very much a contact sport. You cannot delegate that 
to someone to do on your behalf. Now, certainly that does not mean the CMO becomes the community manager, but you must personally experience these platforms in order to have the empathy to understand at a very meaningful level what what's happening on the platforms. And the third reason I would submit that CMOs must be on social media is listening. Many of the conversations about all of our brands are happening on social. And you need to listen to those conversations, even if you choose not to personally share information. It would be foolhardy not to be on the platforms to listen to the conversations that matter in your market. All right. So if it's a, if it's a 10 for marketing, what is it for the CEO? Equally a 10. <laughs> and for the same reasons. For the same reasons. Why would you not want to have access to that data? Let me draw a parallel for you. Many years ago, the CEO, and before there was a title of CMO, would pride themselves on walking the shop floor. Mm -hmm. Well, I would submit to you today, being on Twitter or being on the other social media platforms is the modern day equivalent of walking the shop floor. And to say to a CEO, you would not walk the shop floor, whatever the, the analogy is for that, for your respective industry, is ridiculous. But yet so many CEOs are not on social. They are not walking the virtual shop floors. Yeah, and, and I a thousand percent agree with you, Margaret. You know, the, the sort of the comeback I've heard is, well, you know, the people on, on social media, they're not everybody. It's just the loud people speaking. I said, oh, you mean that's really different from the people you meet walking down the shop aisle? That's right. I mean, we all know this. The vocal few tend to um, maybe not represent the masses, but the vocal few have a voice. And frankly, it doesn't say that you believe everything that's um, shared on social media. You still, there's no substitute for judgment. You still have to take the inputs, process them, and do what's appropriate for your organization. But to not listen to the data and to, frankly, not be part of the conversation is, is a missed opportunity. And there's also an element of language. That's to say, okay, it's different than having a fireside chat or maybe walking down a, a, in a store in real life shaking hands. And, and yet it's vital. So the question is, go in there and learn. And learn un to understand the semantics, the way things are, what that emoticon means, what these types of languages are meaning, because that's what your customer is speaking in. I believe you're right. And I think one of the myths that may limit CEOs and CMOs from entering this arena is the notion that it's a personal vanity. Folks who are on social media are just looking for an, an outlet. I don't believe that to be the case for many, although it may be for some. So that's the first thing, eroding that personal vanity. And the second thing is, if you don't personally go on these platforms, in my view, when you talk about them, you come across as a tourist, a foreigner, if you will, because it's alien to you. Whereas if you're on the platforms, you understand the strengths and limitations of each social platform and the channel and social as a vehicle in general, you can be more native. And that's at the heart of my earlier comments around influence and persuasion. It's being relatable. It's being native. And it ultimately, 
is another vector that improves your judgment as a leader. I love that. That's a tweetable expression, Margaret. I'll try and go, I'll go, go, I'll go back in and grab that one and put it out there. So, Margaret, thanks for coming on the show. Tell us what's the best way for someone to uh, track you down or, or follow you. What's the best way? What do you prefer? I invite everyone to follow me and engage on social media, of course. Naturally. Um, uh, myself, personally, I'm yeah. at Margaret Mulroy. Our company is at Siegel Gale. And you will find us on all the usual uh, social media platforms. Really look forward to engaging with everyone. And uh, very much appreciate your thoughtful questions this afternoon, Minter. It's been my pleasure, Margaret. I, we have some great pearls. And I, I think you're, you're spot on. I love your conviction. And uh, to, to not mention your clarity. So many thanks for coming on, Margaret. Our pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com, that's mindset with a Y, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes. That really makes my day. Happy trails and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way. Rid me of the gray and heal me with all your imperfections that you mention in your lack of self security. Oh, I wouldn't care about the art form as long as you would feel warm, wrapped in canvas.
of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 